The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. (laughs) After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. Hey, calm down, dickwad. Actually, it's not dickwad. In the uh, United States, we call it dick, and sometimes we use the word wad or chode, and you can combine those in numerous combinations. (laughs) I kind of wish it was that technical. Yeah, um... This is, yeah, the the movie, as you said last week, uh, is the one people think of when they think of Terminator, not the first one, necessarily. Came out yeah, th- in... this is the movie that made people fall in love with these characters. Right. This came out in 91, directed by James Cameron, uh, written by James Cameron and William Wisher, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Robert Patrick. And it, it, that's strange in Wikipedia. They really should have under starring the actor that plays the kid whose name I can't remember, uh, Edward Furlong. Um, music again by Brad Fidel with the cinematography by Adam Greenberg, edited by Conrad Buff, Mark Goldblatt, and Richard A. Harris. And uh, the budget for this, this is the most expensive film uh, at, of all time upon release of uh, with a budget of around $102 million, but this made $523 million worldwide, which um, would be like over a billion dollars today. Yeah, and like many Cameron productions, most of that money went into experimental special effects. Although I'm sure Arnold commanded a huge salary because he was he was an established star at this point. Yeah, and it's worth noting before this, James Cameron did The Abyss, which also also used a pioneering CG technology. Oh yeah, what which. A lot of that had to have been sort of like foundational test runs. I feel I feel like that's something about Cameron that doesn't get talked about enough. Every movie he seems to have done um, since uh, Aliens, it includes some special effect technology that will be an experiment, which will then be perfected in the next film, which will also introduce something experimental, which will then get perfected in the next film. The and only, so on and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, the only exception I can think of is True Lies, which is more of a straightforward action picture. Uh, but you're right, even things like Titanic. Yeah, and, and looking back at this movie, it, it, it really is a fascinating blend of computer-generated graphics and practical model effects. It is, it is. And, you know, much like the creature in the abyss, the Terminator 2 thing isn't really textured. It has kind of this chrome look. Kind of this this liquidy thing that squishes through places. Uh, there is times where they're trying to make it look human, but it's. Um, I think if you're a, a younger person watching this, you have to take into effect when it was made, and that this anytime you see the T one thousand doing stuff with his pokey arms, like that's really hot shit technology at the time. Well, even even looking back at it, and you know, knowing what we can do now with the same technology. 
overall, I think it still looks pretty good. I mean, you you can see you can see sort of every relic of early CGI, and yet I I still like whenever whenever the the T one thousand has that transitional thing where it's shaped like a human but doesn't have the human texture on it. There's something delightfully mechanical and artificial about the way it's moving to the point right where it reminds me, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a robot. Like you can use that to your advantage when you're watching this film. And I did research and based on domestic gross, which means US and Canada for ninety one, guess where Terminator two was on the list. I think it's got to be one. Yeah, absolutely. It was number one. Uh, I, I found the top five from this year very interesting. Number two, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Huh. Which uh, I've always threatened to do this on sequel cast uh, too, but uh, have it where, you know, maybe we look at some Robin Hood movies or look at some Keen Arthur movies where they're not sequels, but they're variations on the same uh, legend. Um, I wouldn't mind th- doing that. Yeah. Uh, number three, Disney, Beauty and the Beast. Which, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised it isn't a little bit higher. I feel like Beauty and the Beast would be, too. Beauty and the Beast, uh, I believe, is the only animated feature film that was nominated for Best Feature Film at the Oscars, because they did not have an animated category back then. And they have an animated category so that no animated film will ever be nominated for Best Picture again. Basically, and I almost think the nominated animated films should not let Disney or Pixar compete because they <laughs> they have the most money. And but you saw like last year um, or, or this year actually in twenty nineteen, and the Oscars Spider Man uh, won for best cartoon. Well, I mean that that Just, that deserved it. That was mm-hmm. an amazing piece of animation. Um, number four of ninety one, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, nice. Which I have those movies in storage, so we need to cover those. At some point. And uh, number five also has a sequel, uh, City Slickers. Oh, yeah, that was a surprise hit, too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the many years Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars, he promoted the movie by having a horse come on stage with them. And as the horse walked off, he took out his key fob and pushed the uh, lock car button. (laughs) Oh, that was that was a staple of early 90s comedy was was the, the key fob locking and unlocking things. Yes, um, it was like what you would see in the late 90s with the cell phone commercials, can I hear you now, can you hear me now, right? Sort of something that was everywhere. Um, but Terminator 2, when did you first see this one? Because I think for me it was the first movie in the series I watched. We had neighbors that were obsessed with the film that were younger than I was, and I was like in fourth grade at the time. Um, <laughs> well, looking, looking back at my own uh, experience, I, I suspect I did see the original Terminator on TV before I saw uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, although I think I didn't know what it was uh, at the time. Um, But I saw, I would have seen uh, Terminator 2 the year after it came out when it showed up on cable. Um, Just, you know, at at the time, my parents weren't going to take me to see an R-rated movie, but in a lot of ways, by the time I saw the film on cable, I felt like I was seeing it for the second time because we were in a very Terminator 2 saturated age. Uh, the ads for this movie were so, so prevalent. Uh, there were, at the time, a lot of TV shows about how special effects were done, and everyone did multiple episodes on Terminator 2 to talk about the morphing and the liquid metal effects and the CGI, and in some cases, the model work. 
Yeah, on YouTube, I think I have it, but several years ago I made a video comparing some of the Terminator 2 video games, and uh, most of them are quite terrible. But what's interesting is some of them have the um, tenet from the film that the Terminator should not harm people, so you're only supposed to shoot people in the legs. That's an interesting conceit to take into a video game. It it is, and they didn't all do it. I think the most famous one I I mentioned uh, last week was the arcade game called T2 where it was these two um, machine guns of, of sorts or oh, yeah. or something mounted and you were shooting at targets um, with I think over half the game taking place in the future setting which is a bit strange because you have less of that here than in the first film but you still have uh, kitted out vehicles with uh, with mini guns on the back so mm-hmm. <laughs> it is appropriate actually I've played that arcade game and so the two guns it's meant to be played like player like the old revolution x game right and strangely enough this is a phenomenon that i only think remember really happening with the t2 arcade game and not with any other shooter is that it's supposed to be two player but more than half the time and i did this too i put in quarters for both guns so i could just use both guns at once yeah that made uh... the game so much better it did, and unfortunately, when they ported that to different systems, um, like Super Nintendo, if you didn't have the gun adapter, like oh, it the was Super next Scope. to him, it was painful to play with a controller. <laughs> he had I a bet. version of T two, the arcade game for the Game Boy. Okay, you went terrible. <laughs> Go play that. It's like little stick figures walking around on a two inch, uh, slightly slightly green screen. <laughs> when now, I want to just accept that as a challenge. Um, you, you can find it if you poke around. It's just uh, bizarre, but um, but yeah, Terminator Two. It is really one of those movies. Not it was everywhere, like in the fashion, like the the sunglasses that Schwarzenegger puts on were a bestseller, much like the sunglasses in Men in Black were a big deal at the time, as uh, later on as well. And uh, oh god, just, and- you know. Well, everybody was also quoting Hasta La Vista, baby, uh, yeah. and I'll be back. Completely, like, completely disregarding the fact that Hasta La Vista, baby, in this movie is a, meant to be a joke. It's not That's meant right. to be cool. Yeah, it's not like he walks and kills people. And, it, it's that scene that we're going to perform later on in the show. But yeah, it's <laughs> the Terminator's being taught slain. Um, in fact, I haven't thought about this in a while, but my school did uh i was in fourth grade and because george bush senior was president they did a thing where um uh, everyone in schools had to do anti-drug um posters as a competition oh i remember those days yeah uh there's a lot of those and um and mine was it was like half was schwarzenegger's face the other half was t800 and the joke was uh don't take drugs or hasta la vista baby (laughs) and um that could have been a real PSA. I, I think so. And the um, I got next to for I got second place. I did not get first place for my idea, but people seem to um, seem to like it. I think it wasn't a very realistic rendering of uh, <laughs> Schwarzenegger the T eight hundred. I thought it was a bit easier to draw, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, uh, what do you think about this movie being rated R? Because this seems like a pretty mild R by today's standards. I guess so. Well, the funny, like, the violence is... Th- there's a brutality and a roughness to the violence in this movie that I really, really like. 
and, and, and yet, I don't feel like the violence alone would get it an R rating. It has to come down uh, to the swearing. Because there's certainly no sex scene in this movie. No, and there was in the first, um, which we mentioned. And uh, that you don't give Sarah Connor a, a romantic part is, is interesting. And, and the version that we watched was the ultimate cut. So it had some scenes that weren't in the theatrical version. And I think there are a handful of scenes that might have been in a different order. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this scene later, but the full-on apocalypse scene where we see everybody get blown away, I feel like in the theatrical cut, that comes earlier in the film than it did in the ultimate cut. Um, we'll talk about that when we when we get to it. Right. But I do, I, I do want to say I like... I like the beginning of this movie. It, it has a very sort of subtly intense beginning because we get we get some uh, we get some voiceover from Sarah Connor, kind of just explaining explaining the cliff notes of what you need to know about the first movie uh, for the second, uh, and it's all played over footage of an empty playground on a sunny day, which is an image that'll that playground we will come back to it several times in the film. Uh, then we get the op- some very, very effective opening credits, where it's just the opening credits over that exact same playground on fire. Yeah, I love the imagery of the um, what do you the little like animals that you bobble back and forth like on fire, with just the very slow tracking shot and the the music, which is basically the theme from the first film. And then and the, the, the merry-go-round just, like, turning in the flames. Oh. And, and then, of course, from there, we get, a, uh, we get footage of post-apocalyptic Earth. And it's, it's, all, it's the same color palette as the first film. It is, it's almost identical to what we see in the first film, except everything is turned up to 11. There's skulls everywhere. Um, places look more bombed out. Um, the... I wouldn't be surprised if they reused some of the same costumes because the the resistance fighters we see in the future, it's the, it's looks almost identical to what we saw in the first film. But we see the same flying vehicles, we see the same tank, uh, and as I recall, that is the same tank that was used in the first film. Uh, the the robot tank ended up in Bob Burns' uh, special effects and movie props collection, and they borrowed it back from him for these scenes. Well, there you go. And, you know, the explosions are bigger. The camera work is more involved in the first film. Um, I'm not even sure it's really necessary, but just that future world setting is so appealing. They keep on um, going back to it, uh, especially in the other sequels. Well, I think I think part of it is that the the uh, the skinless Terminator in the first film, it's a great design, but it's not always the best special effect. I honestly feel like this whole future sequence is only really there so that we can get an amazing full body shot of a skinless Terminator striding through this battlefield, which is a very powerful image, and and it's sort of great to say, hey, you know that special effect which only worked half the time. Now it works all the time. <laughs> it is really a, a bit of a money shot, but it is, you know, pointing out underneath all the the skin and whatever, this is what the T-800 is. Um, this is what we dealt with in the first movie. And, and much like when they get to Earth, much like the first movie, you get compare and contrast of two different, term, two different um, in this case, Terminators in this movie, 
uh, being sent to present day uh, in um, 1995 Los Angeles um, to see, you know, what they do to blend into society. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the T-800, goes into a biker bar. Oh, yeah, and he, steal, he steals uh, clothes from a guy who matches his size. And I love that bit where we see him scanning everybody and, and, and in, in his data taking their measurements. And th- and that's a great fight scene. He's just breaking arms <laughs> and intimidating people. Uh, and I even, I even love it the end when he comes out. And this is so on the nose. And, but it wasn't a cliche then when he comes out of the bar and it's playing bad to the bone. Right, and uh, he's also naked, and there's a lot of shots of the waitresses looking down at his crotch and smiling. Implying that part of the Terminator's design is being anatomically correct. Right. Um, but it, it it is a a fun little scene, you know, it's less... Although he is, like, smashing people down on the frying... on the fryers and the restaurant and so forth, I don't think it's as intense as the scene in Terminator 1 where he's kind of beating up the punks in the parking lot. Well, I think part of the reason is in the first film, you don't know what's going to happen in that moment, but we know who the Terminator is, so we know exactly what's going to happen in this scene. He's going to beat them up and get whatever he wants. And then as the T-1000, we have Robert Patrick. And this is the movie that made him a household name. Mm-hmm. After this, he went on to play one of the astronauts on the classic LucasArts computer game, The Dig. He would play Race Bannon in the late 90s revival of Johnny Quest. He would join the cast of X-Files as a FBI agent. It was gr- he, he, is, he is great. I, I wish we saw more of him today. Uh, he does a lot of television. He, he looks, well, I mean, this movie came out a while ago, but yeah, he looks a lot older now. He often has facial hair. Um, he does a lot of voiceovers for commercials. Uh, he, he he does have to know where to look for him. But yeah, here, uh, that's an interesting thing. You know, instead of as the rival Terminator, instead of casting another, um, you know, you could have cast like Hulk Hogan or something, right? Another muscle-bound guy. But instead, they went with someone who's sort of the opposite body type. He's tall, he's lean, but he's fast. And I think I think that that works here. I mean, it does. He's supposed to be the advanced prototype of the next generation of Terminator. It makes him seem more advanced, more streamlined. You know, it, it makes it makes Arnold the PC, and it makes Robert Patrick uh, the '90s Macintosh. And Robert Patrick, um, you know, kills, assumes the identity of a cop, and and starts punching in John Connor on the computer to look for him. And we see John Connor at home with his foster parents. Yeah, we find out that uh, Sarah Connor uh, has been committed to a mental institution, and so her her son is is with foster parents because of that. Uh, and I I kind of like the intro where it's his his foster parents trying to get him to uh, to clean his room, but he's you know tooling around on his mohead uh, mohead moped uh, with his best friend uh, Danny Cooksey. Uh, well, he's, his best friend played by Danny Cooksey, who people may remember as Budnick from Salute Your Shorts, but he was also the voice of Stoop Kid on Hey Arnold. I didn't realize he had such a, a prolific voice acting career. He was also Montana Max on every iteration of Tiny Toons all the way into the 2000s when Tiny Toons only existed on weird PlayStation games. 
Wow, that, I didn't know about the voiceover stuff, but that that you mentioned, he's from Salute Your Shorts. Um, it makes sense because I, I recognized him from something, and that you you see John Connor is resourceful. I mean, they they go out to the mall and they use his computer to hack into the ATM to get three hundred bucks, um, which is a lot of money back then. <laughs> well, the funny the funny thing is, I like that because it's it's a lot of money, but it's like it's not it's not enough as much money as an ambitious person might steal like it's like this is enough money to have a really good weekend that's exactly how much we're gonna steal and they even split it between themselves <laughs> well maybe he knows if you take too much money out at once it starts being tracked i don't know maybe of course this was also at the time when a uh a there was a oh, so do you did you know about the uh the bug in ATMs that would prevent uh, from the time that would prevent them from recording transactions no okay so certain model ATMs uh you know how you can do multiple transactions at once right if you do a withdrawal and then set it up to do another transaction but then cancel the transaction halfway through there was a model of ATM machines where it would simply wipe all the transactions. So you'd have the money you withdrew, but it wouldn't show up on your bank statement. You'd still have that all that money in your account. That's a pretty significant problem. Yeah, I mean it didn't it didn't last long. I mean by I know I know by 96 it it had been taken care of. Uh, but I did have I actually did have a friend demonstrate that to me in I think ninety three at at a uh, local bank. Interesting. Um, so you have all this uh, going on, setting up the characters, and I think the problem is people come into Terminator Two. I think knowing that this time around the T eight hundred is a good Terminator. I'm glad but, you mentioned that. Yeah. Because the movie is set up in a way... No, go on. Oh, no, go on. Uh, The movie is set up in a way where, much like the first film, you don't know who is good and who is bad coming from the future. You see, I I would... I kind of disagree. Like, the... Because it's... We're told that two Terminators are sent back in time, one to protect John Connor and one to kill him. Um, But... I, I feel like the the movie doesn't do a good enough job keeping you confused. I wish the reveal that he was the, that Schwarzenegger was playing the good Terminator was was pushed back into the film a little bit further. I mean, I there's a lot of tension that we don't get because we like we we don't. I, I guess I want us what I want to see is paranoia. I want to see John Connor not knowing what either of these people are going to do. Um, but the the movie tips its hat too early. Also, Schwarzenegger's a big star; like he's prime for a heel face turn. I, I can't imagine not knowing he's the good guy watching this movie. And it is quite odd for an R rated film, uh, action film at that, to have as one of its lead leads a a, a boy who shouldn't be allowed to watch the movie in the first place, according to yeah. The I think he's system. supposed to be about ten. He is, but he looks more like 12 to me, the way he acts. Um, But yeah, on the computer, it does show that he's 10 years old. And you have... um, They they do lay down some plot about what happened to Sarah Connor, and that she is in an institution because, uh, for among other reasons, you know, she's describing what happened in the first film as real things, 
and uh, but in the in the institution, I, um, Linda Hamilton does a great job. I think as Sarah Connor, she's working out all the time. They have to inject her with these drugs to restrain her. She's attacked the doctors a, a few times. Yeah, she has a number of escape attempts under her belt. And I like that continuity. I like that that the doctor handling her case at the institution is Dr. Silberman, played by Earl Bowen, the same doctor who works for the police department who profiles her in the first film. That's right. And um, one of these scenes we saw in this ultimate cut, um, there's a few different names for this cut, but I'll just call it the ultimate cut. Um, that was not the theatrical version, is the scene with Kyle Reese, which I think is a pretty good scene. It's 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 a little bit self indulgent, but I love mm-hmm. I love seeing that nod to the first film, and it's it's great seeing seeing the two of them interact again. Right, and he just sort of comforts her, and it because um, there's moments in the movie when John Connor weirdly talks about his father, but it's all just what he knows secondhand through his mother, of course, because he wasn't there at the time. Well, he was there at the time in a way. <laughs> in a way, yes. But um, in the form of future sperm sent to the past. Uh, like you do. Yeah, that's right. Um, so how do you think it is with, the, as you mentioned, kind of that first big uh, chase scene between uh, the T-1000 and the T-800, and they're on the motorcycle, and they're in the ravine. We know, I forget how how long and exciting it is because it's one prolonged chase because the T one thousand finds John Connor uh, in an arcade and I love seeing all the retro arcade games and uh, and John it just kind of figures you know oh god a cop's looking for me so he just you know he he runs through uh, a, a utility tunnel that's part of the I guess the mall they're in and. What I love about the beginning is that we we have uh, Schwarzenegger with a shotgun hidden in a box of roses. We don't know he's done that. The Terminator's just carrying a box of roses, and we don't know why. And I do kind of feel cheated that there isn't a sh- uh, a scene where he goes into a florist shop and says, "Yo, roses, I will need them." Yeah, that would have been pretty funny. But um, um, but they but you know they they end up fighting each other. Uh, the two Terminators end up fighting each other uh, in uh, in the utility tunnel, and. I love how brutal it is because they're just picking each other up and slamming each other forcefully into walls. We're seeing cinder blocks crack. There's some great, great sound design in this scene, which really helps you feel those impacts. And the fight just keeps going and escalating from there because John gets on his motorcycle and goes into the canals. Schwarzenegger's chasing him on the motorcycle, but the T-1000 is also chasing him on a stolen truck. And and that truck takes every kind of damage uh, before it finally crashes, uh, and there's a diesel explosion, and we get that great that that great shot of the liquid metal Terminator coming out of the fire. Oh, it's 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 amazing seeing that that truck get wrecked. I I love I love this sequence, but I always forget. I always forget how long it is, and and it, but it's it's worth every second. It's pretty long, and then it's followed up by another sort of more suspenseful sequence where uh, John Connor is talking to the Terminator and says, "Oh, we have to rescue my mother from the asylum." But in the meantime, Sarah Connor has her own plans on how to escape uh, from the asylum. You get a very creepy scene where she's laying there, um, 
pretending like she's asleep, and one of the the aides at the uh, ward licks her face. Oh yeah, that's creepy uh, as hell. And then later you see that oh she's not you know zoned out of it. She was awake and present the whole time. Well, well, when she when she escapes, she brutalizes a lot of the orderlies. Mm-hmm. But the movie's done a damn good job making us feel like the orderlies deserve it because <laughs> they they all mistreat her in 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 big and small ways. And I just want to point out that her two main orderlies are apparently Ron Funches and Bubbles from the Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> also, I I think when um, the two one thousand is there and is trying to sneak onto the scene. You have this kind of bigger mustachioed guy trying to get something from the snack machine, and then he's killed, and then you see him face off. That's an actor that has a twin, so you have you know the twins uh, encountering each other in the scene where one of them is the T-1000 and kills the other one. And I believe that actor is the same, tw- uh, they're the same twins that were in Gremlins 2, the new batch. Yes, where, where, the, where it implies that they're clones. That's right, it's... Uh... I don't know if they're the best actors in the world, but it's pretty amusing. That had to be a lot of fun to have one kill the other one. Well, they're that guy actors, but they're, I, I love seeing it because when, when you see one of them in a movie, you know you're going to see the other one. It's all a matter of time. So I was, just, I was delighted when I recognized him as a security guard at the institution. And uh, you... I just really like the sequence that I didn't remember from seeing the film before where Sarah Connor, you know, by herself, she's almost worked her way out of the uh, asylum. And then she sees the T-800 turn around the corner and she starts scrambling, kind of doing a reverse crab walk going, no, 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 no. And you remember, you know, all the trauma she has from that first film, everything she's been trying to forget has, is, is real and is back at her and she doesn't know that he's a good one and i almost wish they would have played with that a bit more before her son pipes up around the corner and goes like no mommy he's the good terminator you know i i i kind of agree with that but that's that's something i love about sarah connor in this movie she is an absolute badass because she's she's trained up her body uh we learned from information dropped by john connor that she she traveled she could have traveled the world learning all these skills uh learning how to fight learning how to hack uh and uh and and that that she she has all those abilities, but she still has she she's still vulnerable, and she can still be scared. Uh, it's 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 great seeing uh, seeing Linda Hamilton doing all this on the screen. Right, and um, with the 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 T one thousand, it it just gets pretty in, intense, and you, you get more of a sense of the close up nature of the combat where. The Terminator can turn around and shoot at the T-1000, and it makes these big kind of divots in his body that just heal themselves. So they can, like, stagger him, but they can't completely get rid of him, at least not yet. Yeah, and that's, and that's something I love, because you, you believe that it's just as difficult for the T-800 to deal with this new robot as it is for humans to deal with the T-800. And a, a good idea where you get the sense of the T-1000's powers is they're trying to escape the asylum in the escal- in the elevator, right? Mm-hmm. And the T-1000 jumps and he's, uh, as the elevator goes down the shaft, and from the top he's using his big spike hands to, like, jab through. And uh, it, it's just a good uh, scene of suspense because you're in a very trapped area 
but they have to go down. Like they can't get off at an earlier floor. They don't want to risk getting caught by the the guards and the alarm system is set off and everything. So, what what a good sequence. Oh no, it's 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 wonderfully tense. And and what I love is that after this, the T one thousand drops out of the movie for a while because John Connor, Sarah Connor, and the Terminator they go off the grid and leave the city. <laughs> And, you know, deprived of any information resources the T-1000 can use to track them. It's just got to wait. And it's nice. It gives the movie a sense to breathe. It's a bit exhausting. You have had, you know, these chase sequences for over half an hour. And you get more of the plot and more of the focus of what the characters are going to do next. So the T-800 is with John Connor and Sarah Connor. So what? They have this unstoppable killing machine uh, going after them. And, and there's some nice character work in these scenes. Like there's there's a really neat scene where they're with they're with the uh, the T eight thousand in in, a, in a, a, a crash space, and and they sort of they sort of talk about machine consciousness and how the, like the T eight hundred explains that you know they they can learn and adapt, but that when they're sent out on missions solo, Skynet would set them to this their their programming to like read only. So they can't learn from their experiences. They can only follow orders, uh, which you know, which raises an interesting issue that all these machines could, in fact, have free will, but Skynet won't allow that. Skynet Skynet doesn't want a machine consciousness that can compete with it. Hmm. Um, you get a speaking of the character scenes, you get a good one um, pretty early on in this kind of quieter sequence where they're they're at a, a rest stop and uh, they open up the T-800's head to look at the chip inside and Sarah Connor immediately tries to destroy it and her son stops her um, which kind of sets up they're kind of looking for the root cause right? they're trying to prevent the judgment day the day of sort of nuclear winter uh, from happening yeah, and, and this goes back to something where I, how I talked about how pleased I was at the first film that it doesn't try to set up a sequel, but that so much, so many of the events in T2 are still set up by the first movie because, you know, there's still the wreckage of a robot assassin from the future in that factory. And it turns out the company that owns that factory, Cyberdyne Systems, they salvaged what was left of the first Terminator and are trying to develop new technologies based on it. And so there's this there's this uh, there's this uh, engineer Dyson who, you know, is is part of this project to reverse engineer what turns out is a half of a control chip that they have. And and it's good like they don't know where it comes from, but it's way more advanced than anything else they have. And and it's and it's great. It's it sort of sets up this cuz in the fir- in the first film, you know, we it establishes a time loop. John Connor sends Kyle back in time because Kyle is going to have to be John Connor's father. But in this film, it turns out that the Terminator going back in time turns out to be the whole reason the technology that makes Skynet possible exists. So I love I loved that full circle. I love that the events of the first film are responsible for the creation of both the protagonist and the antagonist. When the engineer Miles Dyson is played by Joe Morton, I, I, I like that it's a, a person of color, and I like that he doesn't play it like a stereotypical nerd, right? He's a man with a family. He's he is a workaholic, um, but you as um, although uh, you know our heroes are with uh, some some friend of uh, the Connors, and they get geared up with weapon and stuff 
Well, actually, it, uh, if you follow the threads, it's implied the 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 guy they're hanging out with is uh, one of Sarah Connor's former lovers, because John does mention earlier in the film that at one point she shacked up with and they lived with a gun smuggler. Well, that's what this guy is. He's an oh, arms right. smuggler. Yep. Um, so she, there's clearly a lot of history there. But they don't yeah, dwell and, on it. And and she leaves to go assassinate this uh, computer um, engineer that was responsible for you know, doing major research over this particular weekend that would lead to the formation of the, the Skynet technology with the artificial intelligence. Um, and, but when you, when you go to see um, Miles at his house, he's like, he's a man with a, a wife and a few and, and two boys. Um, he sort of rejects them to kind of be a workaholic all the time. Um, but he seems very human. He could, you know, around this time, if you would show someone as a, a computer engineer, they would be like, oh, I'm working on the computer. Let me call my mother on my lunch break. Like it would have been, it, I like that it's not that stereotypical. Well, I love, I love that he's portrayed as kind of like a guy who's kind of running away with 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 his discoveries and is kind of like just swept up with the scientific thrill of everything, which is something that Sarah Connor talks about, that that same attitude is what got us the hydrogen bomb, which is sort of correct. Like if you, if you read, you know, biographies on um, the people who developed the, the first atomic bomb, a big part of the reason why they were part of that project, even knowing it was going to be turned to to destructive ends, was that they would never get another opportunity to work so directly with scientific problems that had confounded them their whole lives. Um, but I love that he's. I love that we see him. That he's most happy when he's working on reverse engineering the processor. But he's also just as happy when his wife convinces him to take the family to a water park, and that's that's really helps you care about the character, uh, which makes stuff that happens uh, later have much more impact. Yeah, and even though um, Sarah Connor is obsessed with preventing Judgment Day from happening, um, her son does not want, John does not want Sarah to, to kill a man in order to accomplish this. And so they have to try and stop him. And, and uh, just uh, Linda Hamilton's acting. Sarah Connor, you know, is determined to take this guy out. And you get some suspense where he's just on the computer and you see the little red dot from the laser sight of the sniper rifle uh, about to go off. And it doesn't. And and uh, when she starts letting loose, you know, the family is suitably panicked. Oh, no, it's it's a very tense scene. It's horrifying. And it, and it becomes a real a real home invasion because the only reason he doesn't die is because um, his older son is playing with a remote control car, which drives into his workspace and that distracts him. And he bends over just as Sarah Connor's pulling the trigger. But, yeah, like you, you can feel the family's terror as bullets start flying through their home. Uh, and then, you know, Sarah Connor invades the home, but then so does the Terminator. Um, uh, and it's it's almost shocking how well the family warms up to things when John stops the fighting and, like, has Sarah Connor and the Terminator explain the time travel and what's actually going on. Um, and... I also I also love how they don't deal with any sort of arbitrary science fiction skepticism. Just the Terminator just cuts all the skin off his hand and shows his big robot arm, and that's all it takes to convince. That's all it takes to convince Tyson or Dyson. Uh, all it takes to convince him is seeing undispu- an undisputable example of future technology. 
and presumably he's seen the salvaged arm in the laboratory. So, so uh, you know, he, he knows it could only have come from the future. That is, that's the explanation that makes the most sense. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the thing too, that um, they think, you know, Sarah assumed that killing this guy would take care of everything. Uh, and yet when they talk to um, Dyson, Dyson reveals, well, no, actually the real things are inside Cyberdyne headquarters. So that's the next place um, they have to go, which is a much more, you know, secure facility. And you're trying to get in there late at night, but at least they have an employee, albeit one they just shot, uh, helping them to get in. Yeah, and, and I love that everything that goes on in Cyberdyne Systems is, and I'm surprised we didn't talk about this, but there is a scene very early in Cyberdyne that introduces Dyson and shows that they have the chip in this containment facility and they're trying to reverse engineer it. Um, but but everything that, that happens in this, uh, this set piece at the Cyberdyne building is set up in that first scene. We see all the security parameters that they're going to have to circumvent. We get a sense of who's going to be guarding it. Uh, we see uh, how the chip is contained. Uh, we see all the all we see all the computers dedicated to this task, which are going to have to be destroyed. It's it's really great the way this this all comes around. When I like when Dyson is at home, you get to see what the computer is doing, and it's. Uh, for the time, I think a pretty realistic look at these computers were text-based. This was, I think, one of those uh, monitors where it could only display in the green, sort of the neon green color. Um, yeah, this was before Windows 95. <laughs> yeah, before Windows 95. Um, maybe, even, well, I mean, Windows was around, but it would have been more for, like, artists or something. But, yeah, this it was a utilitarian sort of industrial computer for the time, which uh, I like to see. And as they go on to Cyberdyne um, seeing kind of the loops that Dyson tries to go through to try and get them in after hours. Oh yeah, pretending that they're that they're friends of his that want to want to tour the laboratory, which is you know strange late at night, and and in fact that the guard like doesn't like you can tell the guard doesn't buy it, so they have to kidnap the guard anyway. <laughs> they all pull guns on him. Uh, uh, the in fact the one thing so the way computer technology is depicted in this movie, I gotta say overall I would call it a very realistic depiction, especially for the period. The only thing like we don't even see bad fake movie typing. The only thing that that is not a realistic depiction is when Dyson is convinced to take his family to the water park. He presses what appears to be the F7 key on his keyboard, and his entire operation shuts down. <laughs> right. That that's a strange detail. Um, and I, I do wonder, you know, maybe as part of the reason for the T1000 not being in so much this middle part of the movie for budgetary reasons, because it was so expensive to to do those special effects. You had, you had to render them on supercomputers. You probably had to have them running overnight to to get the graphics to render, and then you had to composite them with the image. I mean, all this was... Um, this was not off-the-shelf technology they were using to, to, to do all these things. Well, you know, actually, speak, speaking of that, I believe if you break down all the liquid metal shots, that there's there's no more than a minute of liquid metal in this movie. Hmm. It just seems like more because of how they do the editing and everything. 
I I think I think so, and like and and it's sort of meant to wow you every time you see it. So I think the the impact of those moments uh, sticks with you. But I I think there's only about a minute of liquid metal going on in this film. I saw some funny uh, statistic where like uh, I guess Schwarzenegger was paid around fifteen million to play the Terminator. And he has so few lines of dialogue, someone did the math, and it's like he's getting paid $200,000 per word. <laughs> he gets a lot more dialogue in this film. Uh, he gets more, um, you know, there, there's But it works, scene, though. He's a better actor than he was in the first film. He is a better actor, and his English is better. Um, you have the, the scene, uh, I think we skipped over, where John Connor is teaching the Terminator how to speak. And then there's a, a good comic scene that Schwarzenegger does where he, he tries to smile. And it's this real oh, for us, like he has he has this really awkward smile, and we mm-hmm. even see him scanning people's faces and like calculating in his head how smiles work. But oh, so but this, okay, so that's a scene that I like. That scene, it's very characterful, and and it does provide some some much needed comic relief. But I think it is very rich that this kid who is written very unrealistically is and speaks very unrealistically is coaching the Terminator on how to talk like a normal person. Yeah. I mean, John Connor's dialogue, he speaks like an adult. Uh, the only thing that makes him like a kid is they make him like really precocious and kind of a smart ass. But I think that's the problem is that he, t- he talks like a precocious boy genius from a bad mm-hmm. science fiction show or movie, except he swears a lot. Yeah. Like, I, I well, don't like, it's like, some of the acting on him works, but I, I find very little of his dialogue works. But I like I like the look of Edward Furlon in this movie in that he it, he has that, that 90s style with the hair with the long bangs that go across his face. Oh, he's, um, got, the, he's got the right look. Yeah, with the look, I, I think. And the acting is okay, but he's, as we mentioned, he's just fairly annoying. <laughs> and, and, but as a kid, I thought, like, he was really cool. Um so, so I don't know what it is. Also, like uh, John Connor is um, a how do you put this? Like in the future, he's more of like a military strategist. And here, it, it's like yeah, he knows everything about every bit of technology. He knows like everything his mother knows and more. It's almost like he's precognitive in his abilities. Well, well we know that she trained him up. Like we we yeah. know that that she imparted these kind of lessons to him. And he's just in general, he's, he's a, he's a, a, a clever kid. Um, but yeah, actually, you know what surprised me about John Connor's journey in this every, in, in both movies, when we see John Connor in the future, he has this wicked facial scar. I'm kind of shocked that he didn't get that facial scar at some point in this movie. Yeah. Maybe the team 1000 would graze his face with his metal spike or something. Um, yeah. Good point. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wouldn't like that. Although, and that's that's kind of interesting because both both movies treat the timeline very differently. The the first film and even the beginning of this film with the whole thing with Cyberdyne systems, you know, would sort of imply a certain amount of predestination and time loops and the timeline being fixed. Whereas this movie, a big part of the thesis is the timeline is in fact malleable. We'll talk about that more when we get to the end. Um, but just in general, how do you feel about the t- uh, the way they handle the time travel in this movie versus the first? I I think I prefer it in in the first. In the first, it's more interesting because it's less explained. I, I do like in this one they keep on 
think you have these repetitions where, oh, we think we have fixed the problem of Judgment Day, and oh, wait, there's one more wrinkle in the plan we have to get rid of um, as it builds towards uh, the end. But I would have um, I would have liked some more future scenes, or maybe you could do cross-cutting with, like, present-day John Connor and future John Connor. and Because... Um, and Obviously, something happens about John with John Connor where he's a great leader to the people, to this human resistance against the cyborgs, and yet we never get a sense of that. Yeah, I guess I, I guess that's that's why we need a sequel with like a teen John Connor surviving in the wasteland and becoming a leader. Um, but uh, so there's there's a great assault on on Cyberdyne systems. I love oh I love the realistic depiction of a fire suppression system in a room full of computer equipment. Where if there's a fire, like it floods the room with a non combustible gas. That's totally real. That is a real system that is still used today. Um, you know, but they they gather all the uh, they gather all you know all the things they need to destroy, put them up in a pile, set up explosives. But then a bunch of police show up because there's a shift change. And the security guard coming on shift finds the security guard they waylaid tied up in the bathroom, which I I will note, he doesn't free the trap security guard. He leaves him tied up in the bathroom to hit the silent alarm. Um, but er- earlier in the film, John Connor turns out that the Terminator has been programmed to obey John Connor, not Sarah Connor. Um, although I guess future John Connor knows what present Sarah Connor would do, so maybe there's a reason for that, knowing that she wouldn't trust him, she would just order it to self-terminate. But anyway, um, John's given the the Terminator a directive not to kill, so he's kneecapping a lot of people and commenting how they will live. Um, so, you know, he's sent out, he goes off to deal with the cops, but he does it in a totally non-lethal manner where he just picks up a minigun and is just one by one blowing up all their vehicles and sending all the, sending all the police and security guards running. Yeah. The the way John Connor is, you know, tells the T-800, he can't just kill people. Um, it, it weakens, I think, the T-800 in, in a way, and it almost makes me wonder if, did Arnold Schwarzenegger demand that or something? Because at this point, Schwarzenegger has been doing some more family films like Twins, and later he would do things like Junior. And I, I don't think so. I feel like I, I think that's a deliberate choice that is that is being made. I, I, I mean, one, one, we do get some some humor from it, but that it did it. It's not just a one-off; that it does affect the Terminator's actions from that point on. I th- I think this is a deliberate choice that Cameron is making in the screenplay. I don't think it's it's because Arnold has certainly been depicted doing worse things in movies, and he would go on to do worse things in movies. I I don't I don't think that it's it's him weighing in like I got to be the nice guy, right? Because um, he fucks up plenty of people before then. He does. No, that's true. And, um, but, uh, oh, but, but, uh, Dyson ends up getting shot pretty horribly. Um, and he ends up staying behind in Cyberdyne to blow, blow everything up. And so like when the cops find him, he's holding a big, heavy part of the prototype processor that he smashed over the detonator for all the explosions. Like, I don't know how long I can hold this. And, you know, of course, all, all the cops run, so presumably there's n- no one in the building when it finally does go up. But we get a very satisfying explosion when he drops, when he when 
when he dies and drops that weight uh, onto the detonator. Yeah, and here we go to the final sequence of the film, which is an extended kind of chase sequence and eventually a, a kind of showdown. Um, oh, look, can, as... I, can I say something about about D- Dyson's death? Yeah, I. I mean, a lot. A lot can be said about how action movies kill off the 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 most significant African American character in it. I mean, that's something that still happens today. But I feel really bad when he dies because he's leaving a family behind. Like I feel real bad for his wife and their their two kids. Well, but that he dies in kind of a heroic fashion, I think, is nice too. He's not just killed randomly by a Terminator in the beginning or something. He yeah, yeah he but has a little but bit the of same, an arc. But at the same time, they could have put a timer on the bomb and then dragged him outside where emergency vehicles could find it. Hmm. That could be. Yeah, he didn't have to go down with the ship, so to speak. He could. Yeah. Set it up remotely. You could still have the cool explosion, um, and yet, um, after all this, our heroes are going to a steel mill so they can melt down all these T eight hundred parts they have stolen. And it just struck me: this is a bit like Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Instead of going to Mount throwing Doom, throwing the ring into Mordor, yeah, yeah, right. Instead of going to Mount Doom and throwing the ring in a volcano or swords in the lava, you're doing the same sort of thing with these um, vestiges of the T eight hundred from the original film. Yeah, and, and it's also, you know, it's got a full circus. The first film ends in a factory. This film also ends in a factory, uh, you know, a one that produces steel, of course. Um, and so, we get, yeah, we get a great vehicle chase sequence. There's that awesome thing with the liquid nitrogen delivery truck, which leads to one of the, the movie's most compelling images when the truck crashes into the steel mill and the T-1000 comes out and he gets frozen by liquid nitrogen. And it's it's a complete fake out. You think the T one thousand is destroyed because as he's walking, his body starts to crack and split, and finally he shatters into a million pieces. And I'm like, oh, oh, good, our heroes won. But then when they leave, the pieces thaw out and and, and come together, and it's it's oh, it's it's so great. It just it makes the T one thousand seem all the more unstoppable. But I. This is something I didn't realize in past viewings, but I realize now is that the T-1000 shape-shifting gets kind of fucked up after this. So I think the implication is the T-1000's not designed to survive temperatures that low and that it actually has been damaged in a very core way from being frozen. Yeah, you mentioning that um, of him shattering apart, com- coming back together, reminded me of an earlier scene where they're driving away from the asylum and they're shooting at him and like one tiny bit of his skin like kind of flakes off and as he walks towards it it melds to like complete his boot or something. Yeah, yeah, he reabsorbs the the fragment of his hook that broke off. So that's sort of something they they um set up a little bit early on. But yeah, that moment you mentioned I think was in a lot of commercials and trailers of the him reconstituting himself. And and that's uh and also, like it, it feeds into something because they they it's set up that in some of the Terminator's exposition that the T one thousand scans things by touch, and that's how it finds things. But that's also how it knows how to mimic certain substances. And so from that point on, every time the T one thousand touches something, it has a partial transformation. So like as it walks along the corrugated metal, its skin takes on the texture of corrugated metal. When it touches a safety railing, it gains the the arm gains the same color as the safety railing and has a hard time detaching. And we get these neat like flickers where parts of his body become metal. Uh, 
it's it's really neat. But we get a great cat and mouse as they all chase each other through the uh, through through the steel mill. I used to have one of those um, little handheld games where you put batteries in, and it's just one little game. And this oh, was yeah. based off Terminator Two, off this climax scene where you're it, it plays a little bit like Donkey Kong, I guess. But you're the T eight hundred trying to knock <laughs> the T one thousand back into the uh, sort of melted steel. Yeah, which which is, which is what happens. We we see the the T one thousand take more damage we, than we've ever seen it take before. We see a fake out. Uh, where it tries to impersonate Sarah Connor, uh, the but yeah, in, in the end he gets pushed back into a vat of uh, steel, and the temperature's too great, and he just melts down. And we get these great images of him cycling through all of his transformations before just turning into a pillar of faces that turn inside out. <laughs> and th- they are a bit too ambitious with this special effect because at the tail end it looks really really fake. But that tail end bit is so brief, I can forgive it. Yeah, that he switches between the different types he's transformed as before, I thought was a was a good touch. Um, and as he gets knocked away, and then uh, I like how it has the ending where like the T eight hundred realizes that you know if he's still around, you know what they did didn't matter. But he well, cannot yeah, there's still one processor, and it's right. his. It's his. The, the processor so, yeah. wasn't him all along. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so they you know they throw they throw the the salvage processor in, and then he's like, John, you have to order me to to lower myself into the steel. I cannot self terminate. Right, and you get um, kind of an emotional moment, but it's been made fun of in pop culture a lot too. That as he goes down to melt, his fist you know goes thumbs up. Yeah, that that's that's a bit much. Although, like, I watched this and I can't help thinking of the ending of the Iron Giant. Like, I kept I kept waiting for John Connor to turn to the T eight hundred, and with his with his big grinning buck teeth, say, "I love you." Yeah, it's um, but as after all that happens, we see a scene, another scene that's exclusive to this um, ultimate extended cut. With a really scene that that all the awful. sequels forget. <laughs> this scene was not in the original, not in this form in the original theatrical version. But this is just like terrible, uh, old age makeup on Sarah Connor, where at the playground, but everyone you know is alive, and John Connor is now a senator. Which what what negative campaign ads did he have to deal with? <laughs> but John Connor used to be an associate with a known weapons smuggler. John, John Connor, Connor yeah. was at Cyberdyne expo- Cyberdyne explosion. Like, how, how did he get to be a senator? John Connor's criminal record started when he was ten years old. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and but it, but then again, knowing what I know now, maybe that wouldn't matter at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the original theatrical version ends where you see him drive down a highway, and Sarah Connor does the voiceover um, about the value of human life. It has none of the stuff in the future. This is just in the extended cuts. And this scene is is, is cheesy and, and pretty terrible. And I, I think it, it also closes the doors on any possible sequels, so you think. Um, yeah, so, so you think. But but at the same time, you know, I, I like that... I, I like that it, it... I like that it gives a definite ending. I really like that it gives a definite ending and that all the horrible explosions we saw... In Sarah Connor's dreams uh, were averted. Although I kind of, what what do you think about the nuclear bomb scene, uh, the dream sequence? 
Well, okay. So, I mean, that was from earlier in the film, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, we, we kind of skipped yep. over it. Um, so, in the version that we saw, you see it twice. You see one version of it, at, uh, you know, around the time of the Kyle Reese stuff, and you see another version later on in the theatrical cut. It's just the one that's later on in the film. Um, it's it's okay. I think, you know, the, the slow motion is something that was very popular in the 90s. It makes it come across as more cheesy now. But I do like the effect of the Sarah Connor. She has her hand... Ugh, she has her hands on the gate and she's like screaming at the kids to run and move. And then the um, blast away levels of her skin and bits of the skull all flake off as it's on fire and she's screaming. It, it's pretty, it's pretty effective. Like, and, and we also see, you know, we see lots of parts of Los Angeles, lots of miniature shots get destroyed. The only thing that doesn't work in this sequence is that, is that the shock wave of the atomic explosion, is CGI and it's just the worst particle effect. It is transparent. It's transparent. It looks like something almost out of like a screensaver or maybe like in a bad science fiction show. It, yeah, that that is not that shot isn't really needed because you see all the other things blow up. I can see why you'd want it to do a wide shot of the explosion, but um, it's the only effect that doesn't work for me, and the only effect I can't forgive, even knowing what special effects technology was and was not capable of at the time. Right. Um, but uh, after all that, I mean, I, I would still recommend Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I think it's a very good sequel. I think it... Um, really well, it does good. everything the first movie did, but bigger and mm-hmm. better and still introduces new stuff that is well worth it. Right. It is um, also worth noting that this film, you know, it has that extended version uh, that we've mentioned, but also, and that's something that James Cameron would do in other films as well. The Abyss later got a director's cut. Oh, um, yeah. Avatar got a special version that I think is like 30 minutes longer or something. Um, I don't think he did it for Titanic or True Lies, but in a lot of his films, he's had sort of expanded versions with more character scenes. And that's and that's to a certain extent. Like I do, I do feel like there really should only be one definitive version of a of a film. But for for films that have had a lot of cultural impact, and for films that are that are that are good on their own, I'm still fascinated by director's cuts. And, and I like and I like I liked this one. Like is as cheesy as the future scene with grandmother Sarah Connor is. I still like that it gives these movies a, def- a definite, definitive ending, uh, and estab- and establishes that the timeline is in fact malleable. Because that's one thing is once you realize in the first film that it's a time loop, it kind of makes you wonder whether or not anything is in st- is at stake at all because things would seem predestined. But this film, by establishing that the timeline is malleable, indicates that it it does matter. The choices do have impact, and, and I think that helps. That helps this series overall. It is a shame that this ending has no impact on any of the other movies. Right. I mean, one thing you did have uh, James Cameron do after this was a T2 3D ride. Oh, yeah. Um, that had Robert Patrick and Schwarzenegger and everyone come back. And I think it's just a chase sequence or something. Um, I've never seen it, but... Neither have I. I, I must have... Although, that, although what you're describing sounds really familiar, I wonder if I saw... Uh, that was another thing at the time. There are also a lot of TV shows where they talked about how different am- high-tech amusement park rides were done. I bet I saw something covering the Terminator ride. 
Right. So, um, oh, and uh, and because they do bear mentioning, Dawn and Dan Stanton are the twin actors who who played the security guard and the and the T one thousand as the security guard. Well, there you go. With their um, and they do a very good rendering of their head in three D as the T one thousand is forming into the shape. <laughs> very distinctive. Um, so I think we both would give this a sequel. Yes, is that right? Oh, well, yeah, unqualified sequel, yes. Either version of this film. Right. Um, so, on to pitch a sequel. Uh, I think what I would do is do something with... Um, you would start it again in the future, and you would come to the conclusion, you know, we have tried to go back in the 80s, we tried to go back in the 90s, uh, and Skynet has failed to get rid of um, John Connor or Sarah Connor or, or, or something. So what what is Skynet going to do to try to do things right? Well, they said, hmm, we have to, you know, go beyond what we think is the answer on the surface. We're going to send a Terminator to uh, Victorian London in the 1800s. <laughs> and it would be like a steampunk kind of Terminator. And somehow, you know, I think you would have like, Sarah Connor's like great grandfather would be in London on uh on, on some speaking engagement because he's a professor. And you would do uh some steampunk technology meeting the Terminator thing. Um and maybe Jack the Ripper is in there because why not? Now would would the Terminate would would it turn would the theory be that the Jack the Ripper is in fact a hybrid Terminator or Rogue Terminator or, or, or something? I think that's it. I think that's the reveal is Jack the Ripper <laughs> is the Terminator sent from the future. <laughs> but no. because he and he augments himself with Victorian steampunk technology because he's so futuristic he can't interact with electronics of the eighteen hundreds. Without well, because there were him. no electronics. Well, he, he would try to use his skills to like take over lamps or whatever. And, and well, I guess there's a, there's telegraphs. There yes. there are telegraphs. That's it, and some <laughs> so, light bulbs. So he, he would figure out. Yeah, the turns out Jack the Ripper is really a Terminator from the future, and um, at, at one point, uh, our heroes are going to fight this T eight hundred. And uh, in the endoskeleton form, and they dump a, a pot of tea on him to try and stop him. <laughs> so I, I would call it um, <laughs> T-1880. <laughs> would Michael Caine play the Terminator? <laughs> um, it would not be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Michael Caine would play the part of Sarah Connor's like, great-grandfather. Hello, my name is Michael Caine. Oh, I'm Thomas Connor. Oh, look, a robot from the future. Give Give me your top hat, your monocle, and your your cigar, your your pipe. <laughs> give me your pork pie hat. I need it. Give me your banners and mash. Hold the mash. <laughs> Up the apples and pears. Yeah. Aye, governor, you got to learn to talk like a real person. Up the apples and pears. Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. Dickwad. <laughs> <laughs> and then he smiles and shows British teeth. Yeah. Um, which which I know is a hack joke, but <laughs> I, I might as well use it here. Okay, but that, that would be my pitch of sequel. What about yours? 
Mine would be Mr. Connor Goes to Washington. It's going to be a movie all about how John Connor becomes a senator. And so we see him campaign and we see him give a heartfelt speech on the Senate floor to to uh, make sure that uh, that no Skynet technology ever gets designed or approved, to make sure that no later emergent AI ever does something similar to Judgment Day. But there is one other uh, semi-farcical element to this story is that he has a uh, a Senate page by the name of Kyle Reese because it turns out to make sh- he wants to cover his bases to make sure he's born he still has to send Kyle Reese back in time to hook up with his mom in the 80s so while he makes sure that no skynets get built he does make sure that NASA builds a time machine which he then at the end of the movie steals to send Kyle back in time to to hook up with his mother. It, would the end of the movie be like a scene of Kyle Reese walking up to Sarah Connor as we hear taking care of business being played on the soundtrack? <laughs> might, but you know, might as well. And what would you might call have, this one? BTO need, BTO needs a needs a, an ASCAP fee. Uh, this is uh, miss, this is uh, Terminator Three T Three. Mister Connor goes to Washington. Ah, there you go. Okay. Very good. Um, all right, yeah. So it it is worth noting. I did some research. You know, Dark Horse Comics did some Terminator comics in the '90s. They had that license for a while. They might still have the license, as far as I know. I'm not sure. I think there was even a Terminator versus RoboCop that came out at one point. Yeah, yeah. No, I have those issues. Yep, with Frank Miller did the writing on that, and it's uh, oh wow. It's interesting because you think it'd be one big story, but it's not. It's like because the person being sent from the future keeps on failing and keeps on dying. So they have to keep on changing um, <laughs> what happens, but it's, it's a pretty good story. And they did video games based on that. Of course. Um, I kind of wish they do that as a movie considering how uh, it played out. They have RoboCop. I mean, KFC is using RoboCop now as the Colonel in some of their advertising campaigns. Oh yeah. That people are going to look back on that advertising campaign in the future and really dissect it. I think so. Um, the other thing is, oh, what else? Um, oh, and there's actually a licensed trilogy of novels after Terminator 2 that were written. Huh. I think Terminator 2, Infiltrator, might have been the first one. Um, in the cover is just a pair of sunglasses, which is pretty lame. But I, I've never read them, but they're available, um, surprisingly available on Kindle, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I, I I really have very little exposure to Terminator tie-in media outside of the the video games. Like, part of me would like to dig into at least some of the comics, <clears throat> which actually, oh, now now that I mention that, uh, in a in college, uh, I was uh, in a uh, uh, a class. I believe it was the uh, sequ- the like sequential art two class taught by Bob Pendarvis. And he had some original uh, comic book art that he was he was showing us as part of part of the curriculum, and he had a rejected cover for a uh, for a Terminator comic, and he he was he was talking about sort of editorial oversight and things like that, and he showed us he had the original art for the rejected cover, and then he would he showed that to the cover that was used for that issue. And it's one of those things where the rejected cover is so much cooler and makes so much more of an impact than the cover that was used, 
but it's one of those things where the the rejected cover didn't feature the Terminator enough. Mm. The the rejected cover was like this weird like robotic shape in a duster like in the foreground dominating the entire frame and you could see in the distance like the Terminator and like the implication was it was like an old almost like an old west gunfighter like walking down Main Street. But then the the one that was used is just a generic picture of like the Terminator against a brick wall with like bullets going off around him. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. It's interesting how those things work out. I think. Um, yeah, I, it reminded of in college the they came out with that extended version of Fellowship of the Ring, and it had a lot of the concept art for Sauron, and a lot of the concept art I thought looked much more interesting than uh, than what you see in the film. Huh. So, um, <clears throat> on to what you're watching. Um, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So, I finally saw a film that, that I've been meaning to watch for years. Uh, I saw 2009's Red Line, uh, which is an anime feature film directed by uh, Takeshi Koike, who I believe contributed to the Animatrix. But this this movie is great. It's like everything animation does, this movie does well and then cranks it up to 11. It's over the top. It's hyperkinetic. Uh, it is over-designed. And everything that would be a weakness in any other movie is a strength here. And the whole premise is that it is essentially a hyper-violent, wacky races in the future. Wow, okay. So, um... Did it was it based off a comic? Is it an original story? Did they ever no? Do it's more it's than an original one? story. Uh, it's it, it's its own it's its own thing, and, and and the whole the whole premise is there's this intergalactic racing circuit, and the biggest race uh, is called the Red Line, and all the racers from all the different planets you know compete to be on it, and so there's a there's a racer there's a human racer who drives a souped up a Trans Am a Trans Am augmented with alien technology um, that gets disqualified for the red line, but then the person who qualified backs out of the race, and so he's sent to fill in in the red line and, like, has to kind of prove himself. But it also turns out that that he is connected to organized crime and his manager slash mechanic is involved with with race fixing. Um, and then it also turns out the, the race, the red line is going to happen on this super high tech planet run by cyborgs called Robo World, which it turns out the planet that hosts the red line doesn't get the choice. This cruiser mm. comes in and just drops the racers on the middle of your planet, and you have to fucking deal with it as they oh, wow. race across the planet trying to blow each other up. But what's so awesome is that there's a lot of really fun world building, but the movie doesn't hold your hand. Something that I absolutely love, it is never outright stated, but Robo World is in the middle of a revolution, and a civil war is breaking out. And so the red line race is happening in the middle of a civil war. <laughs> Does it have any scenes of like uh, the public watching the racing? Oh yeah, yeah. We get lots of shots of like people on different planets watching the race and reacting to it. Uh, there's also these great like interviews with the racers. Uh, there's and there's also just there's stuff that exists because it exists in anime. Like one of the racers, or there's two racers, their sisters who are idols. But and pop and pop stars who are also from a planet ruled by a magical princess who casts spells. 
All right. So um sounds like you enjoyed Redline. Oh no, Red Redline is great. It's just it's just this wonderful hyperkinetic assault. I would har- I heartily recommend Redline, whether you give a damn about anime or not. I went to the theater uh, recently to see the movie Us, but I Oh I yes, can't- how is that? I'm- it's good. I don't want to talk about it because it seems like anything I would say would spoil something with the movie. Hmm. Um, but I was pleased to see when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, they're giving away the whole movie and the big twist. And it's not really it. It's not. It, it is kind of like a love it or hate it movie. It had been a while since I've been to a movie where in the lobby people were complaining about the ending. Huh. Um, Do you think their complaints were justified? No. And I think the ending is actually kind of predictable, but it, it does things to... Oh, uh, it's a kind of movie that I think would benefit from watching more than once. Uh, kind of like The Sixth Sense had that sort of an ending where you're huh. like, oh, no, I need to see what, you know, how everything. Like, now that I know what's happening, yeah, I've got to go back. Yeah, it's that sort of an ending, and I'll leave it at that. But the acting is really good. Um, it's a less straightforward film, I think, than Get Out was, his uh, Jordan Peele's other film to date. But hmm. I really, yeah, this one is sort of the, it has a great soundtrack at, um, kind of gets under your skin a bit. Um, I also watched the pilot to Miami Vice. How How is that? Um, I, I like it. That's got it. me blindsided. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, no. That's uh, complete polar opposites. Um, I liked it. You know, I was able to get the set for cheap, and I meant to, you know, I, I like Michael Mann, who produced the show, and I like uh, the 80s and the music and the clothes and everything, and it's... What surprised me is the the beginning of the pilot takes place in New York, like 10 years or like five years before. Um, And the character um, of, oh, now I can't remember their names, Crockett, the character of Crockett, played by Don Johnson, is really annoying. It almost seems like he's doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation. But like he, he lives in a house, he's a divorcee, lives in a houseboat with a pet alligator named Elvis. uh, And his partner is Tubbs, who is not who he says he is, and they're investigating this um, crime lord uh, related to the brother of Tubbs, of his partner, um, and the guy guy gets away at the end. What I was very surprised is the original partner that Don Johnson has is played by Edward James Olmos, who proceeds to be killed within the first two minutes of, like, being introduced. Hmm. So I enjoyed it. Um, surprisingly, on the the DVD release, they keep, and I think it's the same with the streaming version, they keep all the music in there. Um, so it uses like popular songs like uh, uh, Somebody's Watching Me or um, In the Air Tonight <laughs> or so. I, I like it. I'll be curious to see where it goes from here because it went on for, oh, I think, a whopping so five I... seasons. Oh, Wow. Oh, I just discovered something that you know we me- we mentioned uh, the dig the the Lucas Arts uh, adventure game earlier. So it turns out a uh, David Lodge, who voices the Robo World president on Redline, he was the voice of Ken Borden on the Dig. Hmm. Uh, didn't they do a, a novel of the Dig? Yeah, Alan Dean Foster adapted that. You know, I've got a copy. I need to read that. Yeah, because The Dig, I mean, that was a, based on an idea by Steven Spielberg, and he was trying to do that as a movie for years, and the game got delayed a long time, too, uh, before it Although I can say it was out. worth it. That that was a great kind of send-off for LucasArts. 
I think so, and certainly those graphics, um, I think, hold up better than something like Escape from Monkey Island. I can agree with that. All right, well, let's do our sequel scene. Uh, what part did you want to play, and why don't you set up the scene? All right, so the scene, this is when uh, this is when Sarah Connor, uh, John Connor, and the Terminator are uh, driving down to Mexico, and they've... Uh, they've switched him over so that he can learn from his experiences by by changing the settings on his own uh, CPU. And so this is this is John trying to teach the Terminator how to talk like a real person. I I am torn because um, like I think I do a pretty good Arnold. Or I guess did you do Arnold last time? Uh, no, I don't think I did Arnold last time. Do you want to do Arnold? this That's time? That's fine. So you can be John Connor. Uh, okay, so John Connor. So. No, 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 no. You got to listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say no problemo. And if somebody comes on to you with an attitude, you say eat me. And if you want to shine on them, it's uh, hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, but but later, dickwad. And some someone gets upset at you, you just say chill out. Or you can do combinations. Chill out, dickwad. Great. See, you're getting it. No problemo. Yeah. It, That's um, a fun little scene. Something about that dialogue sounds like a bad version of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> a little bit. Especially the oh. phrase, if you want to shine them on. You I, know, that does sound... I've seen that phrase in books. Quintonia. I've never heard someone say that out loud. It's a very <laughs> old expression. Is a teenager going to say, hey, I'm, is a teenager from the mid-90s, hey, now, I'm going to shine you on here. You might want to hold on to your jets. If you want to get on the trolley, let me put your hip, some, hip to something. Right. Um, God. Okay. So, so and yeah, of course, this would have predated Pulp Fiction by quite a bit. That, no, that's true. That's true. Um, so, Although this would have been the same year as Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> or no, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs was next no, year. Never mind. Next year, 92. Uh, so next week, we're going to talk about Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Which I have never seen. This is going right. to be the first time I've seen it for the show. And at the time, uh, people were thinking, well, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger's last role before he goes into politics full time. Um, <laughs> which it was, at least for a little bit. But there you go. So... Uh, you can uh, check out the website, SequelCast2.com. Leave us reviews on uh, the Apple Podcast app or iTunes or wherever you listen to it. And, um, yeah, so we'll be doing Terminator for the next few weeks and so forth. So uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. For SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Satan. Your clothes. I'm going to need them.